This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So this is the last day of our summer break, and then we'll be doing a couple of series in the fall. We're already prepping to do something for Christmas. I don't, I don't know which thing we're going to pull to do yet. True Crime News. I thought this was interesting, and they make it seem like something it's not a little bit. I, <laughs> I find it fascinating when people get in trouble for something they did a while ago and don't necessarily realize they did something wrong. And this is a Trumbull, Connecticut case. ABC News had it. Several other outlets had it. Uh, it looked like it went on the AP wire. I didn't see a name attributed to this. It just says the Associated Press, but it's from August 29th. The headline is, a man is arrested months after finding a bag full of $5,000 in cash in a parking lot. Did you see this? I did. So here's how it Here's how this breaks down. A Connecticut man says it felt like he won the lottery when he discovered a bag with nearly $5,000 in cash lying in a parking lot, so he decided to keep it. Three months later, he has been charged with larceny. It turns out the bag, which Trumbull police said was clearly marked with a bank's insignia and found outside the same bank, contained cash from the town's tax department. There were also numerous documents inside identifying the rightful owner of the cash as the town of Trumbull. Uh, that's according to the police. The man, Robert Withington, 56, of Trumbull, contends he didn't steal the money and didn't notice anything inside the bag indicating who the owner was. It's not like this was planned out, Withington told Hearst, Con- Connecticut Media. Everything was in the moment, and it was like I hit the wa- lottery. That was it. The Associated Press on Tuesday left a message-seeking comment on Withington's business cell phone. Other numbers listed for Withington were no longer in service. The money went missing on May the 30th, and police said an employee in the Trumbull tax collector's office couldn't find the bag after arriving at the bank to make a deposit during regular business hours, according to a, a news release. Over the next several months, detectives obtained search warrants, reviewed multiple surveillance videos from local businesses, and conducted numerous interviews before learning the bag had been inadvertently dropped on the ground outside of the bank and Withington had picked it up. I walked out into the parking lot, saw something on the ground, and there was no one around, so I picked it up. Withington told Hearst, it's not like I stole something. If I knew I was wrong in the first place, I would have given it right back. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, uh, Withington added. When police eventually interviewed Withington, they said he acknowledged being at the bank that day and taking the bag. He told him that he believed he had no obligation to return the bag to its rightful owner, according to the press release. Withington, who runs a dog training business, told Hearst he has never had a criminal record and his customers could vouch for his integrity. He was charged Friday with third-degree larceny, a felony punishable by up to five years in prison and up to $5,000 in fines. He was released on a promise to appear in court on September the 5th. Anybody who knows me knows I'm all about is generosity, he said. After living in this town for 20 years, I'm certainly not looking for trouble. 
Yeah, he needs to stop talking to the press. Yeah, I have a feeling that is not going to go well for him overall for a, a number of reasons. And the main one being, according to Connecticut statutes, which you were so kind to immediately send to me when I well, started. Because I didn't think that this was going to stick. You thought it'd be a finder's keepers situation? I was like, if I found 20 bucks, I, actually, I found 20 bucks laying around before I picked it up. I mean, because if you go, whose 20 bucks is this? It's everybody's, right? in a bag at a bank that could go several different ways. It gets further into detail, but I did assume a finder's keepers type of attitude here until I looked up the charge. Yeah. So according to what you sent me under their larceny charges, their felony larceny, I guess this is uh, the state of Connecticut, right? Yes, it's the state of Connecticut, and what I did, I went to third degree larceny, and then it said larceny as uh, depa- uh, as set forth in a different statute, and it's that statute I sent you. Okay, so basically, the statute has like several different things that you could uh, uh, look at as. Uh, definitions under this charge. And number four says acquiring property lost, mislaid, or delivered by mistake. A person who comes into control of property of another that he knows to have been lost, mislaid, or delivered under a mistake as to the nature or amount of the property or the identity of the recipient is guilty of larceny. If with purpose to deprive the owner thereof, he fails to take reasonable measures to restore the property to a person entitled to it. Now, there's some loopholes that might be able to be poked there because it technically isn't a person that's it would be entitled to because they were talking it's, about it being the tax It's dollar. an entity, yeah. I don't think that's going to be up to snuff in this particular situation. Uh, you know, this is right in that gray area because he really didn't have, at least I wouldn't think anybody would have the obligation to track someone down who dropped a bag full of $5,000 in cash to give it back to them, right? Right. That's a pretty serious oopsie on their part. And now, you know, it's a nice thing to do. I I don't know if it's the right thing to do. According to Connecticut law, it's you have to do that as you read it, basically because it had the bank's information on it and because there was paperwork in the bag indicating certain things without making a reasonable effort to return the property to the person that's entitled to it, which again could be a loophole, he's committed this third degree larceny, right? Yes. He's, a, he's being charged with it, and it will go before court. Now, he needs to stop talking, for sure, uh, to the media, because I get what he's saying, but, like, this is exactly why they tell people to, you know, get an attorney and be quiet. Well, I I agree with you. I, I think this is a situation, depending on his character overall, which more than likely what happens here is he pays the money back and the saw goes away. That's what should happen. Well, would you have kept it? I, you know, I've come across a few times in my life where something like this has happened. My general rule is try and find, like, whoever owns it. You can, if it's like a, if it's money in in the immediate vicinity and the person is around, you can generally tell the frantic person looking for the money. If it's, if I see how it uh, came to be there and I can 
make a return, I do it. I try and stay out of situations like this from the perspective of like taking it and keeping it, not from any legal perspective, from a like a karma perspective for myself. I don't like to be in that scenario. But yet I would be unlikely to have looked in the bag, honestly. <laughs> I don't think I would have picked the bag up. <laughs> Me either. I really don't. I because I was trying to decide like, well, what would I have done? But I do feel confident, especially if I had seen somebody drop it or if, you know, I saw it with the bank. Uh, logo on, especially if the bank logo was on the side of it and it's in the parking lot of the bank, I would have absolutely probably taken it inside. Um, I probably wouldn't have even looked in it. Right. But I don't know, $5,000 just sitting there in a, in a, a heap. I mean, you'd be kind of dumb not to take it. If it was, if it was $5,000 and it's not in a bag and I know, like I can picture how this went. It's in, it's in the bank bag, you know, growing up, my dad used to be in charge of like Boy Scout money, the church money, whenever we did fundraisers for sports. Somehow he always ended up being the guy going to the bank with a deposit bag. Right. And, and I remember those deposit bags and I remember watching him sit there with like the, the tape calculator and going through and like triple checking his numbers as he wrote out on the like the – the paper deposit, deposit ticket. Yeah. So my guess is that is what's in the bag, like some sort of printed or handwritten uh, sort of a receipt. And right. and that is probably what's going to be this guy's downfall if he keeps talking like this and tries to say – like he's, he's going to come – he's going to find himself in a situation where he probably has to pay back $5,000 he doesn't have now. Well, I, I just – I'm not really sure – from a fairness point of view, that that's really fair. However, uh, like I said about the law, according they they really have followed the law here because uh, what he did matches up exactly with what um, the law says that he can't do without violating it. Right? Yeah, he was so, supposed to put out kind of an earnest effort to find the owner of this money. Right, and so um, I think that could be eye opening for people. And I don't think this is a situation that occurs very often. Usually. Uh, most people don't have five thousand dollars in cash going to the bank, right? Right. Um, and then, it, in the article, it says that the person was taking the deposit when they got to the bank. They didn't have the bag, right? Right. <laughs> Which makes you wonder, like, um, <laughs> what happened, right? Uh, it slipped out of their car when they were running into the bank. I mean, they must have been doing other stuff as well, is all I can think. But so, you know, it wasn't like somebody's personal money and whatever happened, you know, it ended up on the ground. It probably would have been more of the right thing to do to find the owner. But I empathize with this guy's position because it's not like he robbed them, right? Agreed. Okay, so he picks up a bag on the ground and you can you can twist it and turn it lots of different ways to get it to work for whatever you want it to do, right? But like if you found somebody's wallet, you would make an effort to give their wallet back to them. Well, I, I saw this in the true crime news pile and I pulled this out to talk about it. I didn't you know, it's an interesting debate. Like what do you do if you find money on the sidewalk or in this case in a parking lot? Right. And again, I initially, the reason I looked up the statute was because 
I didn't feel like it was a warranted situation. However, according to the law, it absolutely is. Uh, I don't think they're reaching or overcharging here. I I don't know. It's it's a little bothersome to me because I could I feel like any person who would be driving around and might pick up a bag could find themselves in this position, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I saw this guy uh, as we came in to record today. I saw that there was like a New York Post article where he's like front and center talking about it. And I was like, man, this whole thing is just not going to go well for this. He really needs to stop talking. I mean, certainly there's got to be a defense attorney in that little town that can step in and tell him to stop. I, I don't know what's going to happen to this. I feel awful for him, but at the same time, and I, you know, if you find something like this, you, you didn't hit the lottery. Somebody lost it and, and, probably needs it because this is one of those things that all by all accounts in the situations I've been in where I would be turning in that kind of cash that's a fireable offense for that person oh yeah it absolutely is and honestly just because the money gets turned in I'm not necessarily certain that that would mean they shouldn't be fired losing five thousand dollars uh is it's unacceptable. It has ramifications. Yeah, I feel like for whatever, and I'm not saying they did anything on purpose, right? But like, if you can't keep up with it from you know point A to point B, and and see, this guy's going to end up facing issues because of it. You know, I just I feel like they probably shouldn't have that job, but you know, that's not my call to make necessarily. But I do hope he'll like stop talking because it's not helping. Nothing he's saying is getting him around that statute that they're basing his charges off of so yeah it's an unfortunate situation (laughs) and that will i i don't know that that is the case in every single state but i thought well they can't charge him with that just because because i mean he literally picked something up that uh somebody had dropped and in kindergarten you learn sometimes the hard way finders keepers losers weepers right (laughs) And applying that to the situation, he didn't do anything wrong. But according to Connecticut law on larceny, he absolutely had an obligation to give that money back. Yeah, or to do his due diligence to attempt to find the owner. And that's what there's that's what they're really stating is that he because these elements are, are pretty straightforward. He did not and like some places, what happens with this is you have to turn it in file a police report and then the state holds the money in your name and they look for the owner because it's a, it's a significant amount. $5,000 is a significant amount of money. And after a period of time, if that expires, you're eligible to claim the money or some portion of the money. There are different ways that it works. What makes this a felony is because it's $5,000. And what makes this larceny is because he didn't attempt to find the owner of it. Oh, right. Yeah. So I have a couple of cases. It's, it's our summer wrap-up. And one of these cases, I swear we have recorded before. I think you think we've recorded it before. We have not recorded it before that I know of. If somebody remembers an episode hearing this, please feel free to send me an email and I will. Well, you know, after the second element that you mentioned just like a little bit ago, 
that was an addendum to that case and I pulled it up, that made me even more sure that we've talked about it before. Yeah, but it's the end of summer break and it's, you know, it's an important case. And I, I, I mentioned it a couple of different places in some of the, like the other interviews that I've done online with just kind of promoting true crime excess. We're going to do, we're going to cover two cases today. The first case is not that case, but at the end of the show, I'm going to cover that case one more time for a couple of reasons. One is my theory on something related to it. And I will say that, and, and you, I know you don't necessarily agree with me on this. I will say that I'm ending our summer break by talking about a case that I believe is related to Israel Keys. And if I could get into it more, I, I believe that I could sort of prove that. But unfortunately, I've hit a wall finally as, in terms of law enforcement records on the case, and I'm trying to get around it. That's why I wasn't 100% sure if we had released anything on it, because I've been trying to talk to some family members and some people that were affiliated with the case for some time now. I'm pretty and, confident nothing's been released. Right. So we're going to record that again on the end of this. But I wanted to start with a non-keys case that like, I sort of considered for keys like a very long time ago. And then as I moved along and understanding Israel keys, I marked it off the list, even though it's not related to him. It's one of those cases that it pops into my head every now and again, and it bothers me. Now where I come to be knowing about this case at all is it pops up on unsolved mysteries many years ago. Now, if you're looking for something more interesting on this case after I talk about it, I will say that the trail went cold covered it. And that's Robin Warder's podcast, Trail Went Cold. I don't know the name of the episode, and I and I know it's multiple years ago. It's probably I want to say it's five or six years ago. It's probably in the second half of his first hundred cases somewhere, like episode eighty or something. If you want to find that uh, episode of The Trail Went Cold, I. I, he had a, a longer conversation than we're going to have about it. I just wanted to touch on it because it's in an area where I've been poking around on something else. And, and the, the picture of the people involved in this case uh, from Unsolved Mysteries, for some reason, pops into my head from time to time. And the other picture that pops into my head is one of their spouses. So where you can find out more information on this case is the Unsolved Mysteries fandom page, like the wiki fandom page, it has an entry on them. A couple of people have talked about this on Reddit. There are multiple Seattle Times articles, but if you go to the Unsolved Mysteries fandom page, down at the bottom, there's nine or ten links to this story. Uh, and there's even links to like where it's at on Web Sleuths, and I think there's maybe some other forums that are that are in those sources there. We're just going to cover it briefly in terms of how unsolved homicides go in Washington if there's an unusual element to it. Now, this takes place on June 26 of 1994 in Pulyalup, Washington. There are two people here. Uh, this is a case about Michael Johnston and Rochelle Lee Robinson. And Michael, according to sources, went by Mike, and Rochelle went by Seashell. Uh, that was the, the sort of the nickname that people had given her. On the evening of June 26 of 1994, they went to Tacoma, Washington, to play Magic the Gathering. Now, Magic the Gathering, do you remember Magic the Gathering at all? No, not at all. Uh, I remember it, but I didn't play it, but at one point in time... 
I lived in a very small town and I worked in another small town. Uh, I owned a restaurant there. And when I owned that restaurant, there was a little game store down from the restaurant, about four or five spaces. And kids would literally come in on Fridays and Saturdays. This would have been around 2001 or 2002. And young kids would come in and they would have this sort of massive gathering to play Magic the Gathering with these cards and dice. And they played other games too, but Magic the Gathering was like uh, a big source of the income for that store because it had multiple components that these kids could, you know, shell off their parents' hard-earned money on like it was disposable income. You don't need anything to play Magic the Gathering other than these cards and some people with you and kind of your imagination. The game involves mystical creatures. It's got a lot of fantastic elements and the titular magic. The idea is that you're sort of like Dungeons and Dragons. You're creating characters that are going to do battle with other people's characters. So Michael Johnston is 25 years old and Rochelle or Seashell Robinson is 19 years old. And the specific place that they're headed to uh, in Tacoma is called Spanaway, Washington. And that's cited in different sources as being more accurate. I don't know which one is like super accurate there. But they go at 11.30 p.m. on Sunday, June 26, 1994, to play Magic the Gathering with their friends. So they didn't have a lot of concerns because they felt safe with each other and they were going to be with people that they knew. But the next day, on June 27th of 1994, they were both found dead, victims of a pretty brutal double homicide. Now, Mike was a married day laborer, and he was a father of two who lived with his family in Pulyalup. Rochelle worked at Taco Bell in Spanaway, and she was uh, attending Pierce Community College, taking education classes uh, on her way to becoming a teacher. She had been living with her family there. That's how the two of them met, was through uh, community college classes at Pierce Community College, and they became friends. Both had an interest in magic, and Michael would frequently come over to Rochelle's house. Detectives soon learned from the couple's friends that the two of them had been engaged in an affair. So authorities originally put the murders, the double homicide, on some form of explosion of jealous rage. But a private investigator and later a psychic uh, disagree. Now, Unsolved Mysteries describes this psychic as respected. I'm not going to like judge her here. I am going to say that there's something weird going on. At 4.45 a.m., less than six hours after Michael and Rochelle leave the card game they're playing with their friends, a woman discovers Michael's body. This is on June 27, 1994. His throat's been cut, and he had been shot once in the head at point-blank range. He was laying next to Rochelle's 1988 Mazda, which was parked near the 16,000 block of Canyon Road East in Pulyala. It was also in close proximity to a popular shooting range called the Tacoma Sportsman's Club. This area was known as a lover's lane. And for people who don't know what that is, it's just a secluded place that young people 
and sometimes older people can go and park park and have intimate activities of some kind with each other. Later that afternoon, around 5 p.m., Rochelle's body was found partially hidden in shrubbery along a remote tree-shrouded access road off of 66th Avenue East. And that's about five miles away from where Michael's body was found. She had been stabbed repeatedly and her throat was slashed to the bone. Her body was left partially covered by a large cardboard box. Nearby, there was a weathered wooden picnic table and two five-feet-long wooden benches. According to eyewitness accounts and the crime scene evidence, authorities were able to piece together a possible scenario for what had happened to these two. The couple left their friend's house in separate cars, and then Rochelle later went and picked Michael up from the parking lot of Spanaway Junior High School near her home, which is where his car was found. Police believe that sometime after 1 a.m., they parked their car on the road that led up to the sportsman's club. They were alone there for the most part, but when the, the person who killed them appeared, they opened the back door of the car and they found the two of them having sex. So they, the killer forces them to put their clothes on. And when Rochelle's body was found, she was wearing Michael's t-shirt. So police believe that they were forced out of the car, most likely at, at gunpoint or under some kind of threat. Forensic evidence suggested that Michael had been handcuffed and then forced to kneel near the front of Rochelle's Mazda. He then was shot and he had his uh, throat slashed. And police, for some reason, believed that Rochelle was forced to watch. Police believe that Michael was a passive victim in this scenario, meaning the real target would have been Rochelle. There were several straight-in knife pricks, about a quarter of an inch deep and a quarter of an inch wide, in Rochelle's neck. And that indicated to police that they believed that somebody was holding a knife to her throat to basically abduct her and force her away from the original scene. Uh, according to the Unsolved Mysteries wiki, Detective Fred Reinecke concluded that the killer drove Rochelle to the isolated road, and that explained the, the distance of five miles between Michael's body and her body. And he then stabbed her to death, and he covered her body up with the cardboard box. Police marked this up as a crime of passion, and that's how it's reported in several different sources here, including the Seattle Times and on the Unsolved Mysteries page. They're saying that based on the brutal way in which she was murdered, I'm just going to go ahead and say maybe crime of passion, but it doesn't mean that this next part is true. According to Unsolved Mysteries, the police believe that the killer is a person that knew Rochelle well and probably wanted to either have a relationship with her or rekindle a former relationship with her. I'm going to call bullshit on that. I don't think there's any way to know that. It's possible. It's not completely impossible. I think it's uh, derived from the fact that they are pretty isolated. And so there had to be like a certain amount of observation happening in order to even come upon them, right? 
the idea there is that somebody was stalking them. Well, at least they saw uh, the direction they were going. or Because my presumption, based on what was said, is that like this wasn't like a well-traveled road. Right. No, it's not. It's remote. But And they went over to park somewhere, right? Now, I guess it is possible if it was a known lover's lane parking area that it could just be like a, you know, disgruntled person that was aware that of what was what happens on the um, out of the way lover's lane and they were looking to, you know, punish somebody, right? Yeah, we've we've seen different series of crimes that look just like that over the years. So that's a possibility. But if it's someone who knows her, they either have to know that they go there or they have to know enough about them that they've seen, like you said, the direction they're headed. Or they know that when they meet up at this one place and you see the car there, the closest area that they would go is this remote area. According to Rochelle's friend, Kevin McMichael, Rochelle had reported that she felt like she was being stalked by a man that came into Taco Bell about four months before the murder. She told a co-worker that she she told a co-worker that she had lunch with the man once and after that the guy wouldn't go away. She felt like he had followed her home several times. She felt like he had followed her home several times and she said he would come to work and just stare at her until she left. He would also show up at other places where she was unannounced and uninvited. At one point before the murders Rochelle told her coworker that she was afraid to leave the Taco Bell because that man was outside hanging around. The coworker told him to leave, and five minutes later, the guy took off. The coworker didn't recognize the man and had not seen him come into the Taco Bell since the murders. Now, there's a sketch that comes with this case, and this sketch of this this suspect sketch is less of a suspect sketch, and it's more of a the guy that was at the restaurant sketch. They, the police want to talk to him. According to everything I've read on this, and I have not seen a recent update, his identity and any connection that he may have to this case remain unknown. And police have placed this unknown person into a person of interest category. And that's where he stays. After about a year, so summer of 1995, the investigation, as far as the police are concerned, it starts to wind down. Michael, who was married, his wife of six years, Janet Johnston, hired a private investigator named Jim Wright. Jim Wright played everything by the book according to Unsolved Mysteries and according to uh, several different sources on this. He started by clearing the victim's family members. Specifically, he started with Janet. Janet confirmed that she and Michael both had very large insurance policies on each other, uh, about $250,000. However, Janet says that it was at her insistence that they had these policies. She wanted to make sure that if something happened to her, he would have enough financial stability so that he could take care of their children. I always get a little wary of that. I don't know how you feel about it. I, I know we've talked about insurance policies in the past. I don't know how you feel about uh, insurance policies in terms of a situation like this. When I, I think it's not a spouse as a suspect here. Is that how you kind of read this? 
The nature of the crime, uh, it doesn't point to the wife hands-on doing this, I don't think. You mean like like she could have if hired someone the, or asked someone else to do it? Well, if it were to be the case that somebody said, you know, oh, the, the motive was money, he was cheating, she wanted his insurance money, I'm saying that she didn't personally go and kill them because it's going to be really hard for her to get handcuffs on her husband you know, and get him to need, like, that's the kind of thing that kind of throws the situation off balance. Right. And, uh, we can keep going through it, but there's a few things, there's a few other things that I think point away from a female perp. I would tend to agree there. <laughs> but then there's also a couple of things that could point towards a female perp, but let's keep going then. So Janet, According to the private investigator, the police involved, Janet knew that Mike and Seashell were seeing each other. She said she didn't know how long it had been going on, and she didn't have a lot of knowledge of if they were going to keep seeing each other, if they were going to end it, um, or if maybe Mike was going to leave Janet. Based on a polygraph test, the police had already cleared her by the time Wright gets involved and Wright doesn't find any concrete evidence that implicates that Janet had something to do with this. You know, I, I feel like women do a lot of things uh, when they find out their husband is cheating on them. Most of the time they don't murder their husband and whoever they're cheating with. There's a lot of vengeance to be had in other ways. And I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm just saying. Wright going down that path. He doesn't find anything on Janet. He actually doesn't find anything for Michael or Rochelle's side that seems to point back in Janet's direction. Now, this gets a little wishy-washy for me, but Wright uncovers what he calls a a secret side to Michael. Basically, he says Mike is involved in role-playing and fantasy games and black magic and the occult beyond Magic the Gathering. According to... The private investigator, he believes something Mike did puts Mike and Rochelle on a collision course with their killer. That's a that's a direct quote from the Unsolved Mysteries. So what he believed was happening was that Mike was collecting a pretty extensive collection of material related to occult or supernatural things. And because of the nature of the crime, nature of the crime, he believed right believed that people who were involved in possible occult type activities could be the type of people that would commit this type of a murder, which basically means he has nothing. I was going to say, do you agree with that? Look, man, we this guy would have come up if he's a private investigator at this time. This guy would have come up on the tail end of like satanic panic and, and all of that stuff. Cause this is in the mid nineties. Now that was kind of over, not completely over, but it was like, it was like known that it had happened. So people stopped blaming the occult for random stuff before this happened. Right. I just don't see any sort of aspect of it that would even go along with the whole, you know, satanic panic thing or whatever. Cause you know, there wasn't any sort of sacrifice or... Yeah, I, whatever happened here, if, he, if he's saying that, then he has access to something. He either is wrong or he has access to something that has made him think that. One or the other. I think that it was a natural way to go 
based on the last place they were when you have no other direction? Well, that, that's where they get. So a year passing since these murders, you've got uh, Jim Wright is is looking for some way to basically reheat this case or find a new lead. And he decides to do something unorthodox. And by unorthodox, I mean, is he reaches out to a woman named Nancy Meyer. And I'm just going to put quotes around the words respected psychic to the police. Uh, allegedly, she's worked on more than, I think at this point, 500 homicides. And she didn't want to know anything ahead of time. And the reason she does that is because it'll invalidate her readings, she says. She doesn't want to work on other people's theories. If she's going to work psychically, she, she th- that would be called a pre-reading. But she wants to go out and just do the work on it. Without revealing what he was doing, Wright takes Meyer to the road near the sportsman club where Mike had been murdered. And while she was there, she said that she could feel him. And she said she could feel his pain and his fear. And she could feel him pleading. She also got images of what happened to Rochelle. So she felt that Mike must have died second. She says she doesn't agree with the theory that Michael was an innocent bystander. She believes he was the object of the killing instead of Rochelle. So Nancy Meyer believes that Michael and the killer knew each other from their involvement in, quote, black magic, end quote. As she sees the crime, Michael and Rochelle were parked on this road. And Nancy believed that the killer was a man in his late 30s and that he and two young accomplices crept up on Mike and Rochelle as they're having sex in the car. And she believes that the killer forced Michael out. The accomplices pulled out Rochelle and they accused Michael of violating some kind of rule related to some kind of occult vague situation. According to Nancy, after the killer stabbed Rochelle, he and his accomplices drove Michael to the sportsman club. And according to her reading, the older man seemed to have control over the younger people that were his accomplices. Like he could tell them what to do and they followed him like foolish puppets is the quote. She said that her crime scene impressions were so vivid that she was able to envision the three assailants. So an artist sketched her impressions and that is something that they have thrown out on the internet as far as a a composite of him. Uh, There's a a composite of a, a killer, a medallion and two accomplices and, and this is in addition to the composite of the man who was stalking Taco Bell following Rochelle around. She says that the killer teaches at a local college or university. He's probably killed before. And she believes that the accomplices who are younger than him are in their early to mid-20s. According to her, they're now in danger of being murdered themselves by this guy. And that's where this medallion comes in. It's this dragon-winged medallion. And she feels it's some kind of symbol related to Michael and these people. The authorities have common sense about this and listen to none of what Nancy is saying. She, they are completely unmoved by her visions and her theories that this double murder is somehow black magic. Well, I mean, what she's saying, it really doesn't, um, the, the setup, it's highly unlikely that you're going to have a, you're going to have three sort of young to middle-aged men uh, committing a crime like this. 
and not talking about it a year and change later. Very unlikely for this to, for no, and especially like, so they point to some sort of vague, like cult regulation violation, right? Which is weird, but also it seems like there would be more evidence of his activity in something that would have such regulations and why it would be like this act of one of the uh, traditional motives of murder, right? Uh, and it doesn't seem like anything like that presents itself. Like, for example, he's a member of this club, and this club has really strict rules about, you know, cheating on your wife. And so they were, like, vindicating uh, their organization by upholding the rule, right? Yeah, but we end up in this position where... I don't think that that's what happened. I'm just saying it seems like they could elaborate a bit more if they were going to go that route. Well, I think all of this is a double-edged sword from the perspective of this is the thing you need to make it sensational and get it a lot of attention. Which but it hasn't the, gotten. Right, which means and that people didn't take it seriously. It, because it was ridiculous. And honestly, it would be, without being impossible... It is the closest to impossible that you could get with it without being impossible that there are three young to middle-aged men involved in this. And that's just how it works, right? Yeah, it is weird. The police are convinced that among Rochelle's friends and acquaintances, that's where the killer is going to be found. So there, as far as I can tell, there is no resolution to this case. We've got... A couple of clues that we can talk about related to the scene and this one sketch. Let's talk about this for a second. So we have, you know, by all accounts, what was put together is, you know, they're in the vehicle, then they're not in the vehicle. Michael is found by Rochelle's Mazda. He has been shot at point blank range and he has had his throat slit. Sort of the definition of overkill. Well, I was going to say, so well, that says something right there. The fact that, you know, I don't know that, did they say which happened first? No, they don't know. I, I imagined it all happened really quickly, right? Yeah, it's all going to happen in a pretty quick span of time. And so, you know, he they, they're forced out at gunpoint. So the guy's got a gun and that's how he's making them do what he wants them to do, right? Right. And I say guy because more than likely it was a guy. I guess it could be a female, but she somehow gets handcuffs on him. And then our, the perpetrator gets handcuffs on Michael, gets him to in whatever position they want him in. And they slit his throat and shoot him in the head, or they shoot him in the head and slit his throat. Right. Okay, so either way that that's happening, it that is something I agree to the extent that they probably were trying to hurt Rochelle, right? Right. Because of the overkill involved in that. Uh, there was no reason that they had to do both of those things. And it kind of fits the whole, like, stalker scenario, But I do want to say, according to just this little blurb that we're kind of going off of here, I hope that they checked out the guy who gave the account of the stalker. You're talking about Kevin. Yeah, I I agree that could be 
a little weird. The coworker friend person that could I definitely just feel be. like there should be some verification there. I'm not trying to say that he has done anything wrong. It's just anytime there's information like that, and he, you know, he's a. I would say every single male in her life, even people like in sort of passing, should be considered. Now, one of the things I was going to say. So, okay, we've got um, Michael getting shot in the head and throat slit or throat slit and shot in the head right in front of her. They take her away from the scene, not in her vehicle, right? So this person drove up. She's found five miles away, and I doubt very seriously she walked five miles, right? Uh, We don't know if she walked or ran or anything like that, but okay. I would say that they had to have driven. I mean, she would have figured out a way to get away from them in five miles, right? So somehow, you know, she ends up five miles away, And then she's stabbed to death, and they don't say anything about her being sexually assaulted. Which, right, we get into That lends sometimes towards a female, right? Not always, but yeah. I said sometimes. I know. Um, Now, but, okay, this is so weird, too. People that have the mentality of being stalkers, and I'm talking about, like, stalkers like that would do something like this okay be like so fascinated with a girl that like you know um they get so enraged when they see that they're with another guy on lover's lane you know whatever they're doing they kill the guy and then they wouldn't sexually assault the girl right because that's not what they're after, right? Well, either they can't perform, they don't want to defile her, they have something else in mind. And so that it's actually more likely that from what I've seen, a lot of times these weird stalker situations don't have the sexual assault element that like perhaps a like random stranger element would have, right? Right. Okay. And so I don't know that she wasn't sexually assaulted, but nobody ever says anything about it, right? Uh, I haven't seen that. And like, just kind of the way Washington does, I don't know if we would know for sure one way or the other. I would say that if she was sexually assaulted or even if she wasn't, this would be a prime case to, uh, go back and check for some DNA. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I guess this could be a case where it wasn't somebody who was sexually assaulting her. I do think, okay, there's some interesting things about this I'm going to throw out there. First of all, the cardboard box that was over her body, they put the information on here. It was a, it was a big box. It was uh, two feet by three feet, like folded up or flattened, ever how you want to say it. It had a decal on it with information reading Gilcrest Slade, India White, 23 by 35, sub 22, 1500 sheets, 95 millimeters short. So this is uh, it. It says that it had held large sheets of high grade paper used only by professional printers. That's interesting. And forensic tests allegedly convinced investigators that the, this carton that the paper had been in was brought to the site by the killer. It also suggested that for several years, the box may have been in the killer's home or vehicle. And they want to know if someone saw it there. And I want to know if there's evidence on it. The authorities also said that they would like to find the owner of the picnic table and the benches that I mentioned that were near Rochelle's body because they believe the killer may have been carrying them in a vehicle and removed them at the time of the murders. So 
Uh, I guess I misunderstood that. I thought that they meant like it was a um, like a picnic area, but it sounds more like they were dumped there. Yeah. Sort of. it, it, okay. It, Discarded. They're thinking it's more of a dumping spot. Um, so as far as suspects go, police believe that the couple was murdered by either a jealous ex-boyfriend or acquaintance or a stalker of Rochelle. They believe that she was the target of the killer. Michael was a, quote, passive victim. They said it is possible they knew their killer, and it's possible that more than one person was involved. Uh, According to Rochelle's friend, Kevin, he was the one confirming that she had been stalked by someone she didn't know in the months prior to her murder, who would often come to her work and stay there for several hours, that the stalker man was described as being uh, Caucasian, 25 to 30 years old in 1994, around 5 feet 10 inches tall, 170 pounds or so, with brownish blonde hair and acne. He walked with a slouch, and he may have been, uh, he may have worked for a glass company. He was seen driving a truck that carried panes of glass. Police believe that he lived in the Parkland Spanaway area at the time because he was often at her work and would hang around for several hours. Now, Rochelle had broken up with her boyfriend in the months prior to the murder. It had been several months. She had been, quote, playing the field, whatever investigators mean when they say that. But basically, she'd been dating around. There was some speculation that it was possible the boyfriend was responsible. Following the murder, he did say that he had hoped for a future with her. And he believed that they would have gotten back together and gotten engaged, even though they had broken up at the time. According to at least two sources that I found, this guy was later cleared of being involved. Rochelle was active on the early internet, and internet in 1994 was early internet uh, for, for social activities. And she served as a system operator for a computer bulletin board. She would often make friends with people on there, online, and she would spend hours chatting with people on these different bulletin boards. After her death, her friends actually brought up that this activity could have been related to the murders. There's no evidence that's been released that supports this. Jim Wright, uh, the private investigator, he believes that more than one person was involved. He believes the couple knew their killers. He believes they attended some kind of gathering shortly before they were killed beyond the card game. He believes it was an outdoor party or an outdoor gathering. He acknowledged that no one that he spoke with, nobody that's a known witness to any of this, placed them at any kind of party. And he declined to tell Unsolved Mysteries and multiple reporters over the years what evidence he's basing this theory on. Detectives have said there was no evidence that the couple had been at any kind of gathering that night beyond playing cards. Wright believed that the picnic tables and the benches found near Rochelle's body were important clues to the case. And he believes they might've been taken from wherever the couple was supposedly at this party or whatever. Um, I've even seen images online where people sort of reference that, like maybe she was uh, killed in a way that like uh, this table would have gotten evidence on it. And I've seen ridiculous thoughts about like being sacrificed on the table in some of these forums it's weird that it goes there. I mean, you're right about the timing. I feel very, very, very confident when I in saying that they were not at a party with uh, more than, you know, 
a couple, uh, more than one other person, and nobody came forward at this point in time. No, I don't think so either. People talk eventually. This this case is weird for me. And, and I'll just say that, like, you've got the psychic information. It does get some cold case detectives that, like, look at it in 2012. There's not much released about it. I feel like DNA is going to end up being the answer if they have the evidence. Yeah, it kind of depends on what was gathered and how it was gathered back then and how it might have been preserved. There are multiple articles that indicate that police were really doing some due diligence on this. I feel like her clothes would have been kept because she was stabbed to death. There's going to probably be some transfer there if they kept her. Uh, I'm sorry. She had on his shirt. Yeah, if they processed her. If they have it, well, even if they, I mean, I hope they processed her, but if they have the shirt, there was going to be contact there because of the stabbing. Or, like, I mean, I assume since she had on his shirt, he had on his boxers, so that might be a little harder. I, I don't know what they have, but this is a case that absolutely could be solved with DNA. Yeah, I think that's what it would be. I was just going to say, if they processed her appropriately, then they probably got some evidence of the killer, even if they don't realize they have it. But this is one of those cases, like I said, it just sticks in my head. I don't think in 12, let's see, let's think about this. I don't think in 12 it would have been like, uh, because the Golden State killer hadn't had that happen, the genealogy happen yet, right? And so, I see what you're saying. Like time, you're right. It, okay, uh, so if the last time cold case detectives looked at it was 12, it wouldn't have been a blip on the radar yet. Hmm. And so it needs to get cycled. So it will get cycled back around. They will determine if there's evidence, uh, potential for evidence, and this case will get processed. It should anyway. But yeah, because before the Golden State Killer was like 15 or 16 or something like that. And so that was the very first time where they were like, oh, you know, this could happen, right? And there's still a whole lot of legalities that aren't necessarily worked out yet. But regardless, uh, that opened a lot of investigators' eyes. But it's still, you know, a process, right? Yeah, they end up apprehending him in 2018. But you're right. They started... Okay, well, then that's probably about the point where everybody was like, oh, wait, they can do that? Right, right. So between 2016 and 2018 is when they really sort of reveal how they get there. Uh, so that, so this case being reviewed by cold case detectives in 12, that wouldn't have been a blip on their radar yet. Correct. So it's just got to get re-reviewed. In fact, I would say that any case that hasn't been looked at since, you know, right 16 to 18 ish. Right. I I don't really know when everybody was all of a sudden like, oh, they use genetic genealogy. Right. I'm just saying, like, from the point of view that detectives can look at it and see it's got to have been reviewed, you know, within, I would say, after 18, probably. I mean, it's so weird to me. Have you looked at the sketch in this case? I have. So the sketch in this case reminds me of Beavis. Beavis and Butthead, which would have come out in, what, 93? Or Napoleon Dynamite, but it's, you know, that's not till 2000. I I don't really have anything to say about the private investigator or the... Um... No, the sketch is from the cops. It's, this, it's the stalker. Oh, I'm sorry, but, okay, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I'm saying uh, 
Oh, I see. There's also, but there's more than just that sketch. Yeah, there, yeah, if, yeah. If you, you, I see what you're saying. There's a sketch that came from the psychic. That's um, a, there's, there's several sketches. Three sketches that Four. came from the the uh, medallion, the right. two people, and yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay, so, uh, so not to say anything bad about psychics. Psychics were effective on cases. It wouldn't be a question at this point in time, whether they should be used or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what was going on here. This was like basically just somebody writing a fiction story and uh, it didn't get anybody anywhere. Right. So it was a big waste of time. I don't see, I do feel like it's going to be traced to Rochelle and I feel like it's going to be, it would have been right in front of their faces the whole time. Cause you don't get somebody that is, passionate enough or dispassionate enough, <laughs> mad enough to, uh, you know, follow somebody out to lover's lane, order them out of the car, kill the boyfriend, and then kill the object of your affection without right. somebody noticing it. Just like her coworker said, right? Now, it is possible. I mean, there have been cases where I've looked at it and I've said, there's no way it's not that dude, right? How could somebody have this stalker guy and it not be the person that did this to them? And then it ends up that that's the case. It wasn't that person, right? But DNA would solve this. Well, so I went on unsolved.com. I don't know if you've ever been on there. There's a number of comments over the years on unsolved's uh, little article about this. So it's just unsolved.com. And it's literally just their names. Uh, it tells the same story I just told. And this is not the same thing as the fandom page. But there, there's comments as recently as April of this year. Uh, somebody said they should disinter Rochelle and check under her fingers for DNA. And then there's a comment there from a Sean who says, Rochelle is my cousin. She was cremated and no evidence was taken by the coroner. That's why the case has not been solved. I think the only way to solve the case now is to link a gun to the bullet that Michael was shot with, but that will only be possible if the bullet stayed intact enough for forensics to compare to another bullet fired. Personally, I think there's a high probability that it could have been the Spokane smiley face serial killer, but that's just my personal opinion. This cold case is coming up on 29 years soon, and my aunt and uncle are not getting any younger. It would be nice if detectives took another look and solved it so my aunt and uncle can finally step off the merry-go-round. Now, take all of that with a grain of salt. They didn't keep her the shirt? I don't know. I'm just telling you what it says here. Um, and that's why I said if they processed her properly. Because, like, sometimes they don't tell you that they did that. And in Washington State, I will tell you, because I'm going to talk about it in just a minute, they don't tell you anything out there in a lot of these cases. Well, um, I would say that, you know, it's just been very recently that, you know, DNA evidence would be able to be developed and a profile uh, obtained you know, from the touch variety of DNA that they would find in this type of case, right? Because unless she scraped him and they had collected the fingernails, uh, the fingernail scrapings before she was cremated, right? There's nothing they can do there. Uh, The handcuffs, the uh, shirt she was wearing. I mean, there's, there's several good... The handcuffs weren't there, there were marks on his wrist from him. Okay, so they took the handcuffs then. Yeah. Yeah, then, I mean, the shirt is really probably the only thing 
Well, I was going to skim through a couple more of these comments here. Okay, go ahead. So uh, Bill Blasky in July of 2020 commented, there were many serial killers in Tacoma in the 80s and 90s. Research Mike Reimer and uh, Diana Robertson, who were murdered in Tacoma, Tacoma Mountains. Before them, Stephen Harkins and Ruth Cooper were murdered in the mountains. Nine years later, Michael and Rochelle were murdered in a rural area here. Gary Ridgway was arrested in 2001, but his MO was to kill prostitutes. I believe these murders were committed by a serial killer. Uh, then you've got a, another person chiming in, talking about stalking and escalating. Uh, somebody chiming in on the whole idea of the Bush era occult mania. There Now, this one was interesting. That's why I'm getting to. So there is a link on here from 2019 where they pull. Uh, it's an article about Patrick Nicholas. And I thought this was interesting. And so the title of the article is Washington State Teens Cold Case Murder Cracked After Nearly Three Decades. It's an October 4th, 2019 Fox News article from the crime section uh, by a guy named Robert Garrity. It says the cold case uh, rape and murder of a popular Washington State teenager is finally been solved after three decades. We're talking about Sarah Yarborough. Uh, she was supposed to board a bus with her Federal Way High School drill team in December 91, but she never did. Police found her body after they saw a man emerge from bushes behind the high school. She had been strangled with her own nylons. Authorities now say Patrick Nicholas, 55, was linked to the crime after cops tested a discarded cigarette butt outside a dry cleaning business in Kent on Sunday. DNA from the butt matched evidence recovered from Yarborough's body so there you know people are like linking these that guy looks a little like he could have been you know the, one of the sketches it's it's interesting to me how active these little forums get where people are talking uh one one guy named rob main from winnipeg says let me know if this case is solved and it says anonymous but then he signs his name rob main and his email address is right there and i was like that sounds like a guy who wants to know so the serial killer angle, uh, the person is not wrong. There were a lot of serial killers operating mm -hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, no, and at this time. There's no question. And it, it was a horrifying time. And I, I don't know what they do in Washington that makes serial killers, but they have a plenty of them. A serial killer, uh, unless I'm just misunderstanding where they were, right? as far as uh, their car was, uh, that's not an opportunity that a serial killer is going to randomly come upon, right? Well, you got a, you got a number of problems here. And I'll tell you, like, one thing that you've said over and over again, and, and I'm going to point it out to you, you mentioned it over and over here. Your biggest problem in this case is those handcuffs. Well, what do you mean? Those handcuffs mean it's either a cop or it's, a, it's somebody who's done this before. Um, or like a big time stalker, right? I mean, I could see that too, but like, and I'm not saying necessarily murdered before, but you don't show up with handcuffs unless you plan on somebody being well, in those handcuffs and a gun and a knife. I mean, come on. Well, it's a lot. I, look, we're not going to solve this case. Are you, are you sure that the handcuffs weren't there? Cops said it was marks okay. that indicated well, he had been handcuffed. And I I do not see if there's handcuffs there, they should be testing them. Oh yeah, and absolutely. Handcuffs have like rough pieces to them that people 
well, you and just, DNA in them all the time. You would have to um, to put handcuffs on somebody. You would be, you know, touching it, and you know, gloves. I, I'm not going to say touch DNA like renders gloves useless, but uh, it certainly, especially if it's like leather type gloves as opposed to like disposable gloves, you're now going to have things on your gloves, right? That could then be transferred. Yeah. Okay. And so that's going, that lessens the amount that you can disguise just by wearing gloves, right? I guess is what I'm trying to say. As far as somebody actually physically putting handcuffs on this guy's body, right? Right. I was just thinking like the amount of touching that had to happen. The other thing would have been, I don't, I, how many, does it say how many times she was stabbed? I know she was stabbed repeatedly and slashed to the bone across her throat, right? Yeah, it's. I don't have an exact count, but it's a lot. Um, I was gonna say, which again, she's been cremated at this point, but um, well, take that with a grain of salt. But okay, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I would imagine somebody that had stabbed somebody like that could have possibly cut themselves, right? Yeah. Again, the shirt would be relevant as far as DNA well, goes. Well, there's more to it to me than just well, they cut could- themselves. If you're sweating and you're all the things that happen and that person has clothing on them still, there's all sorts of ways that DNA gets to that T-shirt. Oh, yeah. Especially now that we're at the point of DNA that we're at, right? Um, that's so interesting to me that you mentioned the comment about the cigarette butt linking the guy. Because I'm going back again and I'm like, DNA under a victim's fingernails should be so relevant. Yeah, it goes back to a bunch of different things. I mentioned that comment because of, like the DNA changes everything in a lot of these cases. I would think they would take fingernail clippings, even if it was just a murder case in 1994. I'm pretty sure it goes back at least that far. Yeah, well, no, there's no reason that. Yeah, because it, it really depends on what the agency's practices were. Because, I mean, we've got cases that, you know, Backed into the 70s and even further, where they've been able to do DNA. Well, we've also got two victims. Correct. It just depends on how they handle the situation at the time. Uh, but there should be something. And it's going to have to take its turn in the pile. Somebody's going to have to breathe new life into it and see if they can't get something tested. I feel like DNA should be... Which it is. It's just taking a long time. It should be ran on every single uh, piece of evidence that was in direct contact with, you know, that makes sense that, you know, you might be able to lift DNA from in every murder case, right? Um, I understand what I'm saying there. It's a lot. However, it also clears up so many things, right? Yeah. At least in theory. Well, I mean, (laughs) it... When you've got no, now it does, I don't know, I don't know why this case wasn't solved, right? Um, unless, unless it's a cop, because that's the other person who would have a gun and a pair of handcuffs, right? I, but a cop is not going well, uh, you, nah, you never know. Because all of the things that are done here are behaviors of someone who has the same personality as some police officers. But slitting a throat is a lot harder to do than shooting someone. I Look, I'm with you, man. But 
I'm just saying, if they really think it, there were handcuffs involved and we know there's a gun involved, then the possibility becomes, you know, these signs of homicidal violence are like they could have come from tools on a police officer's box. Well, that's a whole different. Um, I know. That's also somebody that could um, potentially uh, roll up on a occupied car on Lover's Lane randomly. Yep. However, uh, what's the motive there? Unless there's a personal connection somehow. There's, you know, probably, there's some kind of personal connection. Did, did yeah. Janet's brother work as a cop? Like, you, you see what I'm saying? I'm with you. Um, I'm, and I don't, I don't even know if she had a brother. I'm just saying like a connection could be drawn if that were the case. The handcuffs are weird. Now they said there, if there's just marks, you know, you could be looking at uh rope used to tie his hands together. You could be looking at uh zip ties used, like you see what I'm saying? But oh, yeah. to have actual metal handcuffs, I, I don't know. I don't feel like that's something that's real... I, in 1994, I mean, I'm sure the public could access them, but it's well, not like you'd be buying them off Amazon, right? Well, you can go look up security guards that have ha- access to handcuffs who have committed crimes like this as well, which is another type of person who could stumble across this. I'm just saying, generally speaking, there should be evidence to solve this crime, and it should have been solved a, a while ago. I think prior to DNA person. Well, sure, because there's going to be um, a connection and there's going to be a motive and the motive is going to, you know, stem from one of the uh, motives that's always present, which is love, money, or revenge, right? When there are two victims, you know, there's two sides and either side could be the element of that, that uh, brings the motive out, right? It, it doesn't necessarily apply to both of them. It can get difficult to kind of trace it back when there are situations like this. But, you know, when you exhaust all of the possible love, money, and revenge perpetrators that would have that type of motivation, that's when you end up, you know, with serial killers or whatever. But they didn't exhaust that at all, right? It doesn't even really seem like they took it very seriously at all. Uh, the most information that we have in this particular um, source is, you know, a psychic and a private investigator. I know this. and That's one of the things that I run into in Washington and Oregon is from, I try to make friends out there and sometimes I don't. I told you. On this next case we're going to talk about, the guy basically told me to pound sand when I wanted to talk to him about something. And it took also, me so long to figure out what you were saying. He told me to get lost. And, like, you know, this – got to remember, this is the same time frame. Like, I always think of the Clark Elmore case. If you go look that one up, he killed – I think it was his stepdaughter or his girlfriend's daughter, Christy Onstad. That was linked to him. He has a, he had a twin. He was going to go steal the, steal the twin's identity. Have you heard him? You know what I'm talking about? Can you say the name again? Clark Elmore. It's that sounds like vaguely familiar, but no, I I don't know. Right There's on. another one from later that's really similar to the case that we just talked about. I'm not gonna drag that one into this though. But if you want to read one that's uh, interesting, that's a that's a Washington State case where it there was a connection between the 
the suspect and the victim, and they they found him pretty quick. But I think she was younger. I think she was like fourteen or. 15. But how does that connect to this other case? Oh, uh, rape, murder, dumper in the woods, that kind of thing. I mean, it, but it was. We don't, but I know Rochelle but, wasn't raped, right? Right, and this guy was a—he was a strangler, not a stabber. So that, right. that's, so that's no the connection. other thing. Well, that's the other thing that's contradictory. Somebody carrying handgun, stalking, carrying handcuffs and a handgun, and then stabbing. That's weird to me. Well, the fact that they shot and stabbed the guy is, I mean, that's something. Yeah. I just, I was using this case as my, my like end of summer because it's one of those cases that sticks in my head. Do you, do you have anything else on Rochelle and Mike's case? No, I hope that they um, saved the T-shirt and they checked the DNA on it. That's yeah, it. me too. That's literally and, how this is going to get solved. And if your thought is true, because I always thought the handcuffs weren't at the scene, but if they were, I hope they checked those. I, I have no idea why I thought that, but that's what I was – because I was thinking if she I, had on his T-shirt, he only had on like boxers or whatever, right? Yeah, I think I think that comes from the images from the Unsolved Mysteries, by the way. What's I think that? I think they show handcuffs in that video. I, I don't know where I, I haven't seen the unsolved mysteries for this case, but I was just I always when I go through these cases, especially the cold cases that I feel like would be good candidates for uh, genetic genealogy testing at this point in time, like in 2023. Right. Um, I always kind of visually consider the situation because when you've got a situation where you've got like a, you know, a naked body in water. Right. Places you can get DNA, relevant DNA from, go substantially down, right? Yeah. Um, but then in this case, I was kind of going through, you know, the Rolodex in my mind, and I thought that he had handcuffs on. And I was like, well, it's unlikely that the perpetrator would have touched this guy's boxer shorts, right? If right. that's what he's got on. And then she has on his T-shirt, Right. Right. Okay, so, but he put handcuffs on him, and so if the handcuffs were there, of course he had to touch those, right? And so that's why that came up. I have no idea if handcuffs were there or if anything binding his wrist were left behind for whatever reason. That's It just showed up in my mind when I was Rolodexing the scene of what could possibly um, have the killer's DNA on it, right? Yeah. I'm gonna. I would be very disappointed if her, whatever she had on, when she was found, wasn't kept. I mean, they they have a, several photos of this box, right? Which gives me a little bit of hope that they kept some evidence, right? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that box. If if what they say is true, as far as it being in somebody's vehicle or at somebody's house for extended period of time. Um, it looks like it was probably in the back of a truck for a long time, the way it's faded out. Yeah. But um, they could possibly get DNA off of that. I would agree with you there. Um, but anyway, so uh, I, I hope that it would be um, – Oh, I feel when you were talking about her cousin speaking up about, and he said, you know, my aunt and uncle aren't getting any younger. Um, that's really heartbreaking, right? Because they've lived with us all this time and it, you know, next year it'll be 40 years, right? No, that's uh, not right. 30 years. Okay. It's 1994. 
30 years. Yeah, 30. Okay. No yeah. math. <laughs> no math. We're not allowed to do math. Uh, I guess I'll save the rest for the outro. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Okay, this couple. Do you remember, like, the early Israel Keys stuff? There was this article. I think KEPR is where I pulled it from, and it's like a it's like an August 2013 article. It's when the FBI first starts like releasing his timelines and little dribs and drabs about him. Uh, this article says Alaska serial killer murdered Washington couple. Uh, and this is KEPR TV from Sunday, August 11th. Rachel Dioro wrote this, and uh, it went out on the, the press wire. Uh, a location is Anchorage, Alaska, AP. The FBI on Monday released an updated timeline of travels and crimes for Israel Keys, a confessed Alaska serial killer who is believed to have killed 11 people before committing suicide in a jail cell last year. The timeline shed some new light on a mysterious case that left a trail of unsolved killings around the country. FBI spokesperson Eric Gonzalez said the goal of releasing the information is to identify victims who remain unknown and provide some closure to their families. We've exhausted all of our investigative leads, Gonzalez said. The FBI documents said Keyes frequented prostitutes during his travels and killed an unidentified couple in Washington state sometime between July 2001 and 2005. Keyes also told investigators he committed two separate murders between 2005 and 2006, disposing of at least one of the bodies in Washington's Crescent Lake. Now, that we believe that that's Zach's case there. When he killed himself in jail, the 34-year-old Keyes was awaiting a federal trial in the rape and strangulation murder of 18-year-old Samantha Koenig, who was abducted in February of 2012 from the Anchorage coffee stand where she worked. Keyes confessed to killing Koenig and at least seven others around the country, including Bill and Lorraine Courier of Essex, Vermont. In 2011, the FBI said Monday that Keyes is believed to have actually killed 11 people, all strangers. Keyes told investigators whose victims were male and female and that the murders occurred in fewer than 10 states, but he did not reveal all the locations. Koenig and the Couriers were the only victims named by Keyes because he knew authorities had tied him to their deaths. Keyes told investigators only one other victim's body besides Koenig's was ever recovered, but that that victim's death was ruled as accidental. The bodies of the couriers were never found. The FBI said Keyes admitted frequenting prostitutes, but it's unknown if Keyes met any of his victims this way. Keyes said he robbed several banks to fund his travels, along with money he made as a general contractor, according to the FBI. Keyes also told authorities he broke into as many as 30 homes throughout the country, and he talked about covering up a homicide through arson. The timeline begins in summer of 1997 or 1998 when Keyes abducted a teenage girl while she and her friends were tubing on the Deschutes River. The FBI said Keyes was living in Maupin, Oregon at the time, and the abduction is believed to have occurred near that area. The FBI said that Keyes lived in Nia Bay, Washington in 2001 after he was discharged from the Army, and when he lived in Nia Bay, Keyes committed his first homicide, according to the timeline. 
The identity of the victim is not known, and neither is the location of the murder. Keyes moved to Anchorage in 2007, but continued to travel extensively outside of Alaska. After killing Koenig, Keyes flew to New Orleans, where he went on a cruise. He left Koenig's body in a shed outside his Anchorage home for two weeks, and after the cruise, drove to Texas. The FBI said during that time, Keyes may have been responsible for a homicide in Texas or a nearby state, a crime Keyes denied. Keyes was arrested in Lufkin, Texas, about six weeks after Koenig's disappearance. He had sought a ransom and used Koenig's debit card. Three weeks after the arrest, Koenig's dismembered body was found in a frozen lake north of Anchorage. The FBI said Keyes also traveled internationally, but it's unknown if he killed anyone outside the United States. That's just the article. One of the things that's always bothered me about him, just like that case we just talked about, is... This idea that Keyes killed an unidentified couple in Washington State between July 2001 and 2005. You know why it's bothered me? Why? Because if you go, like, name of something, and I know you do, like, a lot of different things in terms of missing persons. If you go looking for missing persons in NamUs and you say, I want to look between, like, this date and this date of last contact and you've put in July of 2001 and you go through 2005. And I know that people sometimes aren't reported missing, but if you do that and you narrow it down to Washington state or Oregon or the surrounding states, or even look at the entire United States, if, if that's what you're doing that day, how many couples do you come across? Not many. It's it's very rare, right? Right. Um, and you have to keep in mind, uh, let's see, we're like, so we're like 11 years out from that information at this point, uh, as far as what the article you were just reading. It's exactly 10 years this month. Right. But what they got from Keys, though, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, missing people uh, in cu- couples that are missing are very v- rare. Okay. And so you have to keep in mind, you know, could it be a couple that they didn't have anybody else in their life to report them missing? Right. Now right. it seems like it, by this point in time, because if you're talking about, you know, 2001, we're now, you know, 22 years out from that. Right. Somebody, something would happen for them to be reported missing, even if it were like, you know, not paying their trash bill or like their mail piling up or something, right? Yeah. I, I mean, you would think, uh, you know, some surprising cases happen where like people literally just disappear, poof, or they die in their house, right? Right. And nobody knows until like the house gets foreclosed on and the new buyers go in and find the old owner dead in there, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, um, taking all that into consideration is my point. Yeah. So in August of 2005, we discussed the case of Zachary Weston and Sally Stromberg, who of the 67 missing persons reported in Washington state that are public knowledge as of right now in NamUs, they are the only two that go missing on the same day. And when I expand my search out and I go looking at Oregon, there's 55 missing persons from Oregon for that time period. And you end up like in the same position. There's a couple of like 
these situations where one parent took children from the other parents, and that is technically on the same day. There are uh, there's a situation where uh, three or four people go missing on a boat at the same time. You have the case of Eugene and uh, Cami Volendroff, which at one point I don't think Eugene was in Namus, but he is now. But for the most part, people don't even disappear on the same day when you get this far out because there's been some sort of resolution. Correct. So I had this case. And it relates specifically to this commentary about Eastern Washington or, or whatever you want to say he was saying in, in the interviews, ever how you want to like look at what he was saying there. I have never been able to get it out of my head. And I bother you about this case all the time. And I bother the people about this case all the time, like, like as far as law enforcement goes. There's something about me where I just am annoying about it. And I'm always going to be annoying about it. And I don't know exactly why I'm going to be annoying about it. I just know that I am. But this case has very limited coverage in terms of the news media and sort of what went on at the time. And I'm going to talk about it here today because we thought we had already covered this at one point, but we really didn't. So in, in terms of coverage of this case, the first real article that you will read about this that isn't related to a missing person comes from 2008. It's from the spokesman up in Washington State, which is the Spokesman Review or Spokesman.com. And it actually pops up on October 27, 2008. And they're talking to a woman named Kathy Forish. And Kathy is discussing her child having gone missing. When I like read about this case, I don't I don't know how you feel about like this whole thing. It brings several things to the forefront for me, but it's, it's technically for a moment between 2001 and uh, 2005, it's a missing couples case. And it has a really weird outcome. And that outcome is they're found separately over time. And all the cops will tell me is that they were found with signs of homicidal violence. So after you and I talked about the Long Island serial killer, this came back up to the forefront again for me because we realized they were describing bindings there. Right. So here's like the rundown. Um, As far as like, you know, was this in the news? Yes, this was in the news. It was in the Spokesman Review in very small articles between 2002 and 2003. In fact, Uh, there are six small articles. The first one on December 20th, 2002, just says police seek seek help on missing couple. Uh, The next one is on uh, January 9th, 2003. It says police fear missing Spokane couple killed. On March 18th, it says dental records may help identify body. And then March 20th, Police almost sure body is missing mom on that's on March 20th. And then on uh, June 2nd, it says body and river was missing woman. July the 3rd, police seek help locating missing man. The couple that I'm talking about is a couple named Angela Walsh, who was 34. She was a mother of two and a man named Terry Palm, who was 37 
And they were reported missing on December 15, 2002, after last having been seen on December 9th, 2002. The pair had checked into the Boulevard Hotel off of Sunset Boulevard in Spokane, Washington, to celebrate Walsh's birthday with friends, which is what the article says here. That's not exactly what was happening. On March 15th, 2003, a woman walking her dog found a body a mile south of the Seven Mile Bridge in the Spokane River. DNA later confirmed that this was the body of Angela Walsh. And Angela Walsh's daughter, Brittany DeCrest, was 14 at the time. She said that her mother had appeared in a dream that she had had a couple of weeks prior to the body being found and that her mom told her she was dead. And she said, if you want to find me, I'm by the ice on the water, but I'm under the water. At that time, Walsh's boyfriend, Terry Palm was still missing and he was wanted on a warrant for distributing a cold controlled substance. Palm's body turns up in September in the Spokane river as well. Police considered both deaths to be the result of quote, homicidal violence. Now, this statement is made, it says that Walsh and Palm both had a methamphetamine addiction. Police say the couple had angered some people that they were hanging out with because they were selling bad meth, as well as a fake ingredient that looked like meth called red phosphorus. And then they have a phone number here where you can call the Spokane police at 509-456-2233. You can read a couple of different articles on this case. Websleuths had a brief entry in there, and... I think there's a Facebook page that maybe has a little bit of information on there. Here's what I'm going to say about this. This is a missing couples case that doesn't make the news in a way that you would think about this. And the bodies are barely reported as found. When I say that they're reported, they are a blurb. And they're sort of treated like there's nothing to this case. So I say that because I don't think necessarily Israel Keyes would have seen this. And I believe there is a possibility in my speculative world that this is the couple that he was referencing because of the way they were put into the water, the time they were put into the water, and the fact that they are in Spokane, Washington. Now, what does that mean? He talks about being in the valley and putting couples in a hole. He doesn't say it's dirt. And he also references Eastern Washington. All of these things sort of tie to like this case and Israel Keys having talked about having done those things. But what's interesting is actually the location. Sunset Boulevard, Boulevard Motel, is on a trailhead that leads one way to a fishing area and goes another way back up the Spokane River along several fishing areas. If you were to park at the the trailhead to go either direction, directly across the parking lot from where you would be going to go fishing, is one of those shitty motels that we know Israel Keys liked. And that is where they happened to be staying when they went missing. Now, there's a number of things wrong with this uh, being keys, but there's a number of things right with it. So it does have a little bit of press coverage. It's not attributed 
like nothing is really said about this being a cold case murder until much, much, much later. In fact, Israel Keys is dead by the time this thing gets cold case coverage, other than a 2008 article that briefly mentions the family members. So there's a phone call made where the, the mother, Angela, indicates to her mom that she's going to be coming home, but it's going to be later. Now, the birthday celebration, they're in this motel because someone has broken into Angela's apartment and Angela's scared to go back there. That's not going to be a keys thing if that is tied to their deaths. And there is a woman who picks them up and takes them places from this motel location. Another key factor here is there was commentary about a woman with pale skin who may have a rich grandmother. I will say that some of Angela Walsh's family were fairly affluent, not all of them, but in terms of mom and grandma on Angela Walsh's side, if you go look at their obituaries and all the charities and philanthropy they're involved in, they appear on the surface, if you are taking a superficial look at them, to be wealthy. I only bring all of this up because I've never been able to figure out how, a, like I thought about it from the perspective of it could be people from another state. It could be people who are reported missing on two different days and they're not officially a couple. It could have been a couple that's from a different place in terms of internationally. Uh, and that could be why we don't have an answer to who is this couple that he's allegedly killed. I think there's a strong possibility that he is referencing the December 2002 disappearance of Angela Wash and Terry Palm. And I think that he doesn't realize that they are recovered and identified over time because there's no point in time where an article appears missing couples' bodies found. There is simply... Remains found here, remains found there. These remains were identified. And after they find Terry's body, it is 2008 when Keyes is in Anchorage before this appears as a brief blurb in the local paper. I think all of those things sort of align for this to be a good case of Keyes' couple that he killed in Washington. I know you don't necessarily think that. You want to run down why why I'm wrong? Um, no, I uh, I don't want to run down why you're wrong. Um, what I will say is, um, before you found this case, now just to reiterate, they were temporarily missing. Then they were f- subsequently found uh, several months apart. And they were just boyfriend and girlfriend, so, like, they weren't ever, like, really publicly said, like, oh, this couple was found, right? Correct. Okay. In the case of Cammie and Eugene. Right. Okay, so for the longest time, according to NamUs, I'm pretty sure they were the only couple, right? And, you know, those poor kids got washed out to sea. And it is no more outlandish than that, I would say. 
we came up with our own like pretend couple that both went missing in the area uh, during at the same time, right? They had no affiliation in real life together, right? Right. One was from Yakima. One was just in the parks. But they disappeared. I mean, he, in theory, um, they were in the path that Keys would have been taking to get back to Western Washington, right? Correct. Okay, so... The case has, uh, this particular case, it has more things to it. Um, I'm always so hesitant to say, like, I think these poor people may have been the victims of a serial killer, right? Uh, I do think that it's something that needs to be, like, definitively ruled out, right? Uh, However they would do that, however an investigator would do that. I don't know about, we know that Keyes is in CODIS, and the way this case played out, I got the feeling that uh, it's probably going to remain an unsolved case for all of eternity because nobody's doing anything about it. They were uh, dismissed. The victims were dismissed by the investigators working it. Yeah, they looked at it like it was drug-related, and they kind of just went, well, that's never going to be solved. Well, or, like, we're never going – I if it, if it has to do with drugs, I feel like it probably already has been solved. It's just not adjudicated in any way, right? Right, right. Um, which, you know, that's absolutely a way that this case could go. There were um, multiple polygraphs given to the woman who drove them around. Right. She was thought to be involved with this. And that, you know, that element is the element that made me think these guys really don't know what happened to them. The cops really don't know what happened to this couple because they're going after her and she didn't strike me. I I reached out to her. I was trying to talk to her on on Facebook Messenger and, and get a little more information from her after the current detective told me to go away. And I wanted to point out to him that, like, if they had any evidence in that case, this that Israel Keys would be a good suspect. I think that sounds crazy when you say it, but, but it it okay. So I don't necessarily agree, but I do acknowledge the fact you don't have a lot of these couple cases that aren't readily apparent exactly what happened to them, right? Like a murder-suicide or a domestic situation or like something that you it lines right up, right? Yeah, my guess is they're both zip-tied. Well, and see, to me, um, which, you know, we kind of, the homicidal violence link was made because we found out when Rex Hewerman was arrested that the references made to the homicidal uh, violence being the uh findings the in the cause and manner right it was due to the fact that they were bound and so it clicked and i was like oh maybe that's how because one of my biggest questions with this case was uh you know the only cause and manner that's listed is homicidal violence and it may be drowning or asphyxiation i'm not sure do you remember it doesn't say anything about drowning or asphyxiation. It just says homicidal violence. Okay. And so, you know, I know that probably, you know, uh, medical examiners, I even looked at it at when, you know, back in the earlier part of this year when we were going over this, 
trying to determine like, well, what does that mean? Right? Like, what does it have to have to be considered, you know, homicidal violence? Clearly, that's leaving it sort of an undetermined, except they're saying it was by its violence by the hands of another, right? Yes. And so, you know, binding tends to lend towards that, right? Especially if it's a perfectly healthy uh, younger person who there's no natural reason they would have died, right? Um, especially not uh, both of them at the same time or around the right. same time or whatever. There are elements of this case um, that definitely could, I feel like it would warrant being ruled out. And I don't know what, uh, you know, the average interested party perceives at this point. I feel like my thinking could be really warped. But when I first heard, like, around the date you just said about that article they put out, it probably... Uh, that would have been around the time it was actually put out, right? Uh, so 10 years ago or whatever. I wouldn't have had the knowledge to know how much of a unicorn situation the couple really is, right? In the world of of, of cases. Missing persons cases, unsolved homicides, usually if it's a couple, there's some kind of good inkling that they know what happened. And in this case, it sort of looks like there's one on the surface. It does. Okay. But even still, but see, that that makes me go, well, since it's been um, 20 years, right? Yeah. Uh, Why isn't it solved? Um, And so... I'm just the reason I'm I'm I don't know that this is a keys case. It wouldn't have occurred to me that this would be a keys case. However, I am backing up your position by saying that in you know 2013 or whenever uh, we got information where we were just you know in our investigation on keys was in its infancy. It never would have occurred to me like how rare the couple thing is, okay? Right. And I want people to realize that, you know, I have made this sort of an exception. I mean, we've talked about all kinds of things. As far as, like, this could, you know, definitely be something else. However, this unsolved couple's case, the way it occurred, because they were missing people for a while, right? Correct. Um, This is not a case where, you know, you have a situation like the other case we talked about where, like, they were never missing, right? Their bodies were discovered shortly after um, they were killed, right? Right. Um, This is a case where, like, months went by before they were eventually found. And then months or before she was found. And then more months went by before he was found, right? And so... The cases that can fit that criteria are so rare. Now, if everything were to line up here, I I do agree that this could have, the press that was given to this case wouldn't have necessarily garnered his attention as far as like him realizing the bodies had been found. And uh, I would say that uh, just to be completely factually uh, on point, you mentioned the wealthy grandmother. And if I recall correctly, 
the chick with the wealthy grandmother also had an old car, and there's nothing here about that. Which I've been trying to determine get, the, the car we, part. Yeah, we can't get the additional information on that. So, like, that's just me pointing out, you know, the facts there um, that as I know them. But I would encourage anybody that's still listening to this episode. <laughs> Go look for, you know, a couple case that you can fit into that um, situation because it had to have happened to somebody, right? Yeah, it, it, like it, it seems like it had to have happened. It seems to be from his writings that are in his cell, and I've tried to get my hands on them. I've been told no. So He's then actually I, talked about the couple, though. He has talked about the couple. Because and, he didn't and the, disclose the relationship of the couple. Uh, uh, correct. And, you know, when you get into a situation where it's like this, they said something about old car or vintage car, and they said something about a wealthy grandmother, and this woman has slightly paler skin to some degree. And when I see that, and I'm thinking of things, that's, how does he come across this information? I don't know the answer to that. I don't, right. And, it, and every single bit of it is subjective, Right. It totally is. And, but the thing that, that got me on it was when I go looking for couples that are missing or have a homicide, and I'm not trying to brag about this, 90% of the time I know what happened to them. Like exactly what happened. Yeah. I know, I either know where you could look and find them, which in a lot of them, it's their car. Well, right. And most of the time, it, the vehicles that aren't recovered, it's, you know, it's really tragic, but it, it doesn't change my opinion. Right? They're in the water or the woods. 90% of the time they're in the water, 10% of the time they're in the woods somewhere. Maybe less than that. But yeah, it does happen. Uh, cars go off the road in non-water places, which w- when that happened, the very first time uh, that I found that case, uh, I found a case where... A couple was missing in their car and like, I think I looked at it and there wasn't really a situation where they could have been in the water, but, uh, a vehicle saw them, uh, saw the vehicle go off the road. And so they called 911, right? And do you remember what I'm talking about? I remember exactly what you're talking about. Okay. And, and so other people have like, started to figure this out too, but this has been years in the like, making. I was like... Oh, no, because, you know, I mean, as far back as NamUs goes, every single person that went missing in a vehicle, I've nailed the body of water they're probably in, right? I mean, that's just what I, I, according to the circumstances surrounding their disappearance, it is so incredibly hard to get rid of a vehicle, okay? And when that car was found in the woods, I was like, well, that changes everything. Right. Because it never occurred to me that if you are driving fast enough and you've got a dense enough area, I mean, it makes sense when it happened, but that that was the first time I'd ever heard about it. Something like that. A car literally launched itself so far off the road and it, it was witnessed by one other car, but when uh, the car didn't stay, and I think they had kind of seen it in their rear view. And so they didn't uh, they didn't stay. And when responders responded, they couldn't find the car. And so, it, like, uh, you know, 
uh, days or weeks went by before they were found. I do think that cars in woods would be found, um, especially these really old cases, if they were in the woods as opposed to water. I think they will eventually be found, but like cars in the water, I think could literally end up in the ocean and never be found, right? Yeah, and I've seen a few cases where, actually, excuse me, I've seen one case where a car almost wasn't found because it was the smallest little retention pond and they were literally bulldozing dirt and debris into it to close the pond off. And the change in the water level is what showed them there was, it's tiny, like it's like the size of a swimming pool. And there's a car sitting in the bottom of it. Right. And were there people in it? Yeah, there was a person in it. Okay. And so it's just food for thought. I know that that's not, not it's, it's actually, it's really hard to tell a family that, right? But I stand by it. It's hard to get rid of a car. Um, in the event that foul play is involved, right? Um, it turns up somewhere, especially now, right? I mean, we've tracked cases at Lake Travis. We've Daniel Imbo and Richard Patrone popped up. We've had a couple of cases where there's couples that we still don't know exactly what happened to them, but this they're rare in terms of there being 300 million people in the United States. It is a handful of cases, like literally less than a dozen cases that a couple aren't found. Well, I find, I wish I could remember the name of the episode, but uh, we're about to hit 200 and they're kind of escaping my mind. But the episode about um, the couple that we kind of surrogately placed together, to me, it, it, I stand by our, our, what we said, our investigation and, and our, um, our episode on that. However, to me, that is a reflection of the like sort of desperation that we've faced in the, in, in this couple situation. Yeah. Trying to put two people together missing in a way that they could have been murdered by a serial killer and somehow both end up not being reported missing and not never found. Right. And never get found. Right. It's, and, it's a pretty daunting task. It is. And it's not just like a daunting task. It's actually like, I feel like we would like see it immediately. Right. Like, uh, if you know, the forest wasn't in the way of the trees. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but also there's so many cases where, you know, you can say things like, you know, Oh, uh, you can say like that wasn't a serial killer. I'll just put it that way, right? This case, I mean, I'm, you know, I would say probably 75-25, I would say 75% not a serial killer, right? Right. But then you've got this element where uh coming across them wouldn't have had to have been random cuz they were at a, a motel, right? Right. Um which we don't have any evidence that he's necessarily took anybody from a motel, but we do have in his interviews, he spoke briefly about being tempted to take somebody that had just pulled up in a VW bug yeah. at an apartment complex while he was walking around his uh, motel where he was staying. And this was in Vermont. This is the head of the couriers. Yeah. This is like, like the the VW bug person would have been in, in lieu of the couriers, right? Right. 
Um, okay, so we've got that sort of scenario. Now, because they were in a, a motel and there's other stuff going on, you know, could he have been observing the situation, right? He sees them get dropped off. Then you know he sees see this like as you know some sort of opportunity, right? And honestly, yes, he could, right? What's what's the likelihood of it? Well, I have no idea, right? Yeah, they're not found super far away from the motel they were at. They're basically found a couple of miles. Uh, I say upriver. The, the motel is not directly on the river. It's just close to where all the trailheads come together for you to walk down either into this park and this. Uh, there's a so there's a national forest there. There's a reserve, a preserve. There, uh, if you go further, there's actually a reservoir that you can fish at. And there are multiple stops along the Spokane River that all come together at this little valley point. I don't know how to explain the feeling I get from looking at it on a map, but basically they walked away from their motel and they're never seen again. And yes, there is another option than keys, but all the other options than keys, and this is just me personally speculating, they should have wrapped up up by now. I agree. And that's actually one of the reasons why I'm not as hesitant to kind of put it out there is because uh, there is there in theory, there is a very direct cause here, and it would fall under, like, sort of the revenge motive, I think. Um, yeah. The link there would be direct enough that we shouldn't have, this should have never even, like, been an unsolved case, right? Right. Um, so the reason that it's not uh, solved, you know, giving credit where credit could possibly be due, I would have to say that they've exhausted that option, right? That's what I um, think. Well, I mean, if they've exhausted it, that means either, you know, they can't obtain justice or it's they're barking up the wrong tree to go that way. So, okay, it doesn't seem like there's going to be another motive uh, having to do with love. Uh, it could have just as easily been money as it could have been revenge with the exact same situation, right? I think so. Money and revenge go hand in hand, just depending on what you're talking about. Once you get a case with 20 years on it, right, around 20 years on it, um, you have to start wondering why isn't it been solved? Well, it, you know, it could be that they just didn't try. These are disregarded victims. Or it could be that, like, there really isn't a link there. And so once the, like, traditional motive link is gone, you... What's left is, you know, a random serial killer. Um, now, that's not always the case. I'm just saying, like, I personally like to see those other traditional things exhausted first, right? Were they having an issue in one of these areas, right? And you well, should... I, I read that she, like, got him meth for his birthday. It was his birthday. It was his 34th no, birthday. It was, I thought it was her birthday. It was one of their th- – uh, no, you're right. Sorry. It was Angie's – it was Angela Wash's 34th birthday. So the night of the 9th into the 10th, they disappear. What she had gotten for her 34th, 34th birthday was meth from Terry, her boyfriend. Right. And, you know, when I hear about things like that, like, okay, 
Oh, maybe they got themselves into some kind of situation. I so my initial response to this because of the homicidal violence comment on uh, you know how they died. Uh, I said, well, what if they did it to each other, right? Because you know people can get messed up and get mad and do all kinds of things. Is my understanding. I, I don't really know. But I was like, well, what if, you know, he put her in the water and then he somehow committed suicide or, you know, do you remember me saying that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, so I that's, how, that. that's the extreme I go to, to be like, no, this isn't a serial killer, right? Okay, so, you know, if, but when they both come back with homicidal violence, it doesn't really make sense that that could have happened. Because we were kind of, I mean, literally you were like uh, pulling teeth trying to get anything out of this. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, the other side of this is there's a delay. There's a week delay from the time that like they have this you know last party rendezvous thing. There's a delay of uh, six or seven days before they're reported missing, depending if they go missing on the ninth or the tenth, and the last conversation they have with. Uh, the Angie's family. And there's also the fact that they're not at home. They're away. Like, so it gets weird when people aren't in their home, which they're staying in a motel. That is also like kind of a strange factor in terms of evidence collection, let alone if you were staying in a motel and a week later, you're reported missing things happen where evidence gets lost. That type of delay in that type of situation can ruin a perfectly easy case, but usually it doesn't happen to couples. Which is where this is worth uh, considering because, you know, at this point, I mean, I've considered a lot of couples cases um, that ultimately, you know, we never talk about because we rule them out one way or the other. Um, and some of them we do. And like older people in their cars. Oh, I don't, did we ever talk about that? Yeah, they came up. You talking about the maze? I thought we, I don't, I thought we said we thought they were. They backed their car into the retention pond behind their house. But ultimately we thought. So were they whatever. bound? No. They okay. Well, yeah, I was like, so, you know, but, but the reason that came up was because of like the couriers, right? Yep. That's exactly why. Of course. And, and because he said there was a couple. Oh, right. Um, but keep in mind, though, and this is this is relevant. The courier's car would have been found. Correct. At I mean, CBS. it was found, right? Yeah. Okay, and so that kind of gives it a whole new thought to me, as far as like couples that their car is never found, right? Yeah. Now that doesn't have anything to do with the people we're talking about uh, with uh, Angela and Terry. We've been trying to ask that question. I tried to ask that question of the police. I well, tried we know to... that her friend picked her up because she was going to be getting high for her birthday. Correct. And that they traveled. And you said the friend passed the lie detector test, right? I uh, see. Apparently, passed multiple polygraphs. It is entirely possible that this like thing that looks like something like drug related went bad, and they suffered the consequences of something. Again, I go back to, like, why, if that's the case, isn't this solved? It's a double... Okay, so if that's the case, this is a double homicide drug execution that, like, I understand, like, that does happen, but those cases get prosecuted or they at least get 
closed when investigators realized that the perpetrator has died or gone to prison on something else or whatever. Those cases don't end up sitting like this type of case. Right. I, I have a tendency to agree with that. Um, but again, I, I am concerned, especially the response you got, which, I mean, of course, that person probably wasn't the initial detective on the case, I would imagine. No, he wasn't at all. The, the initial detectives, have they're not a part Around, of Around. Yeah, some people years. Yeah, some people have passed on. Some people have just retired and gone to do something else. I, I was trying to go the official channels to get the record on the case. And they have a statute that says I can't have them because they don't do that with open and active investigations. My problem is, what's your definition of an open and active investigation? And if they close this case because of that guy and it has nothing to do with Israel Keys, good. That will make me happy. It's one less thing I have to worry about. Well, sure. Um, and, you know, what's the holdup? I would say that because it, because, it, you know, what are the chances? I would say that it's certainly not a different killer. I mean, I'm just going to say. When I, you... <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a random serial killer. I think it might be this serial killer because of his propensity to be around trailheads, to because be around the fishing fact that areas. They are a couple in Washington state during that time frame. Find some more couples. I mean, I, I really encourage people to find people that, like, the cases were not immediately solved, right? Yeah. Um, it's like, it's so impossible. And I, um, I've, I've gone down looking at missing persons whose date of last contact line up with unsolved homicides. This is like us talking about this case is me having put forth years of effort to attempt to rule this case out to my satisfaction, and I have not been able to do it. So that's the only reason I'm dragging you on here to talk about it with me is because I can't rule it out, and like I and I need to put it somewhere. So we're putting it in a podcast episode, letting it go out into the universe, and we're like I'm leaving it alone for a while. But this but case bothers me. People can take with it what they want. This is a situation where a lot of the criteria does add up to. Uh, it can't be like immediately discounted because the passage of time has happened. We can't say, oh, you know, they'll get it solved. The straight, it, you know, a straight line motive that has been ignored is weird. It's a weird thing. That's what leads me to believe that, you know, these victims were disregarded unless, you know, they legitimately couldn't bring a case with one of the straight line motives. In that case, I feel like every investigator who has a couple's case from that period of time should make sure that Israel Keys didn't do it. Yeah. I hate to be that person, but it's the truth. Like if I mean, they're there's nothing wrong with making sure he didn't do it. I mean, I'm not even advocating to make sure I'm not saying like, you know, try and prove he did it. I mean, just make sure he didn't do it. Just hand it off to the FBI and let them look. It's it it's amazing to me the lengths that um, my brain will go to, your brain will go to, other people's brains will go to, to try and figure out, um, especially the couple's case, right? Um, he did not specify that it was a romantic couple. Um, right. He did not specify the gender of the couple, uh, either party. Uh he, he was very vague, and, you know, to me, there was a reason he wouldn't do that, right? Because they would immediately be identifiable just by the slightest detail. 
Okay. And so, you know, that doesn't lend me to figuring out like, you know, what was the relationship or, you know, what gender were they? So I'm not sure what his thinking was there exactly. And then I start thinking, well, maybe I don't understand anything he's saying and I'm wrong about everything, right? <laughs> this is also a possibility for myself. I could be completely wrong. But, I, but, but the fact that the FBI and the Washington, like, State Bureau, the state police, the locals in the different jurisdictions that have had this information, nobody identifies a couple. So that led me to like, where I end up here is like thinking outside of the box, like how could that be possible? And that's how I land on Terry Palm and Angela Walsh being the December 2002 potential victims of Israel Keys. I, I will, before we get to, uh, I don't know how much more we have on these guys, but I have one more piece of information. Did you read the article about the fire? I did. Okay. Do you have anything else on them or you want me to end with the fire? Uh, yeah, that's fine. So this is from July 15th, 2011. The Spokesman Review had it. Uh, the Spokesman Review had it. Uh, the writer is Megan uh, Kuniff. And it's a very brief article. It says, woman's body found in fire-damaged home. And here's, here's the article. A woman and her dogs died in a fire that ripped through their northe her northeast Spokane home this afternoon. Inez Williams, 67, was described by friends and family as an animal lover who had lived at 4128 East Princeton Avenue for decades. Fire officials are investigating how the fire at the double-wide trailer began. But the woman's niece, Kim Stagg, said her aunt had large oxygen tanks in the home and often smoked in bed. Stags lived in the home with their young children. The American Red Cross Inland Northwest Chapter is helping them with food, housing, and clothing. Several dogs, cats, and birds lived in the home, many of whom were unaccounted for Friday afternoon. Friends said family and neighbors cried as firefighters removed the body of Rottweiler Dashhound mix named Skyler. Skyler and a golden Labrador retriever named Jingles were very close to Williams, said Melissa Hebert, whose boyfriend is Williams' nephew. They were always by her side, Hebert said. They wouldn't leave her for anything. Uh, neighbor Shalit Torres recalled watching Williams use her motorized scooter to walk the dogs on East Princeton Avenue. We used to sit in the driveway and talk all the time, said Torres. According to news archives, Williams' son, Terry Allen Palm and his girlfriend Angela Walsh went missing in 2002 in a presumed murder case that remains unsolved. His body was found in the Spokane River the next year, about four months after Walsh's remains were also recovered from the river. Williams told the Spokesman Review in 2008 that she kept a picture of Palm at Mount Spokane to help her remember him during his happier days. Palm grew up in the Princeton Avenue home that was destroyed Friday. Torres said she was home and the fire broke out next door. She called 911 within seconds, but flames already were bursting out of Williams' bedroom windows. It's scary. It was that quick, Torres said. The fire appeared to have started in the east end of the manufactured home, where the fa family said that Williams' bedroom was located. Seven companies of firefighters extinguished the blaze within 15 minutes, said Assistant Fire Chief Brian Schaefer. The blaze was first reported at 2.09 p.m. Caregivers helped Williams with daily activities, said Staggs. 
One was at the home just a half hour before the fire started. Torres said her only comfort is knowing that Williams is in a better place. It breaks my heart, she said. So that's the article on the fire. So this is Terry Palm's mother. Right. Yeah. Um, now, more than likely, that is, uh, you know, an accidental fire uh, from the circumstances. However, uh, you know, we would be remiss to not see the irony yeah. uh, in the, the fire that uh, killed her and... Uh, or the fire that she died in, and, uh, you know, Keyes' M.O. as far as setting fires. And I'm not saying he had anything to do with the fire. I'm just saying. And then the fact that her son is a is one of a couple that is, you know, an unsolved murder case in the state of Washington. Yeah, they, they wrote this off as um, a cigarette. That's the final cause of the fire. Right. And, uh, you know, I think the neighbor, uh, they saw the fire pretty quick. So it seems like, you know, it, um, it, it's just interesting, right? Yeah. It's just one of those things where. (laughs) And then that makes me wonder like, well, is the world really that small? Like, is this really not a thing that, um, points any particular direction? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because to me, like, what are the chances? I I am uh, just sort of based on, I was trying to think, like, in all the time that I've put into looking for missing persons cases, uh, now this case does not show up as a missing persons case, right? Because they've been found. Um, it's an unsolved murder case, which doesn't appear on my radar until you mention it. Correct. I, you know, there's, uh, there's so few. I, I don't have anything else on this. I just wanted to get it out there. And I've now taken up two hours of these people's time. Well, no, we talked about, about that other case too. Couple, yeah, we talked about a couple other things. I just. No, but I, okay. <laughs> but, but ponder that for a second though. A fire burns this lady's house down and her son is one of an, um, an unsolved couple's murder case. Yeah, this is a month after the courier's death. Yeah, it's in July, right? Of yep. 11? Yep. Well, I I don't know that Keys would have burned this lady's house down. I'm just saying, like, no, sometimes I think have. things that, like, I feel like sometimes there's, like, gigantic flashing arrows that go, hey, yeah. you need to see this, right? Yeah, that's what and it it's, is. It's mentioned in the article that her son, you know, went, missing and is a party to an unsolved murder. Yeah, a victim of an unsolved murder. How will you look back on your when you talk you've had some difficult situations to deal with?
Still stuff on the line. 